Last series that we were in, it was called Light in the Dark. I just want to kind of go back to that great series, and hopefully you got a lot out of it. Uh, we did different things like workshops, and we had a panel, and we had sermons, and so feel free to kind of connect back into that series. We'll have the sermons on the website if you want to look back to that. If you are at the workshops yesterday, uh, it was a great, great avenue to just gain some more insights and information about this uh, darkness of mental health and how to navigate that. So it was weekends. One was we had the mental health workshop, and then two, this weekend, we had some crazy retreat action happening for our middle school students in and out was taking place. Yeah, it was awesome. There was 10 students from the Barberton uh, campus here that went, and we had some leaders that were staying with them uh, at Host Home. So if you're a Host Home, thank you for opening your house to middle school students. If you're a leader, thank you for spending the whole weekend investing in that way. And then our very own Josiah on Friday night uh, got to speak to the uh, campuses, all the Grace Church middle school students at In-N-Out. And so he did a fabulous job from what I heard. Um, so we're excited about that. But we are running into a new series called Pray Difference. I'm really excited about this series uh, as I've been thinking through it. And basically what we want to do is we want to look at a couple passages and we want to navigate what is prayer, but we also in turn want to look at our own personal prayer life. And here's the thing about prayer, okay? And we all know this, I know this, uh, you might know this, you may not, but prayer is unique, okay? Prayer is unique. It's a unique thing to talk about. It might be a unique thing to experience. It might be a unique thing uh, in regards to like, how do I learn about all that stuff? And in regards to prayer being unique, there are different formats to prayer, right? We all know that. There's different formats to how you pray or what you pray about or how you go about in your prayer life. One of them, okay, one of them is my personal favorite. I would call it the shopping list prayer, okay? This is like you have a to-do list, but it's your prayer list, and you can check off when you prayed or maybe when a prayer was answered or things of that nature. That's my personal favorite because I'm like a to-do list kind of guy. Uh, the second one that I, I thought of was the memorized prayer, Okay, the memorized prayer, and you all, know, you all know this one. When I was in high school, though, uh, it was probably 10th grade, I joined football, and before every single football game, I'm not sure where this tradition started, I'm not sure why it started, we would recite the Lord's Prayer before we go out and just pummel people, right? It's like that's the perfect intro into knocking people around, but we would recite the Lord's Prayer, and I'm like, I'm not sure why that was, but we would recite it, and we'd go out and play football from there. So some of you, maybe it's the memorized prayer. For others, prayer is maybe a competitive sport, right? I got to have a better prayer over here. I got to have a better prayer than them, whatever it may be. For some of us, it's kind of the scholarly prayer. I have the right words, the fancy words. I got to make sure I sound good in it all. And then for all of us, okay, at one point or another, whether you believe in Jesus or you do not, we've all thrown up the Hail Mary prayer, right? The Hail Mary prayer. You know the Hail Mary from football. We've all thrown it up where you're walking through a situation and you're like, whoop, don't know what else to do. We'll pray, right? And you just throw it up and you're like, I hope things work out. And I know those might be some prayers that you're going through and we can laugh about, right? But for some of you today, prayer is boring. And prayer has gotten to this boring state where you're like, I'm, I just don't know if I could spend time doing that. I'm not sure what to do with it. It's just become this boring, monotonous thing that I do in my life. For others of us, for others of us, prayer is intimidating. It's scary. Prayer is like, what am I supposed to do with this time? How am I supposed to navigate prayer? 
I think it was interesting as I was, I was navigating this, I found a quote from a guy named Tim Keller. But really, I think as we enter into prayer, there can be this sense of spiritual emptiness as we start it. There's this sense and struggle and tension of spiritual emptiness. Tim Keller puts it like this. In the beginning, the feeling of poverty and absence usually dominates. But the best guides for this phase urge us not to turn back, but rather to endure and pray in a disciplined way. Until as Packer and Nystrom, two other authors, guys that write, say we get through duty to delight. I was in ninth grade going into my sophomore year when I uh, went out for the football team. Uh, It was in summer workout form, summer practice form. I went out to the first practice and I went and came home. And if you know me or you'll get to know that I love football. I'm a big football fan. I love playing football, all that good stuff. And I came home from that practice and I told my dad, I don't want to go back. I did not like it. I didn't know many people. I didn't know the coaches. I didn't know what was going on. I don't know the playbook. I did not like it. I don't want to go back. I'm not going to play. I remember him looking at me and he said, you love football, right? Yes, I love football and I want to play. I just don't want to go back to that situation. He said, I want you to go back. I want you to keep going back and you will not feel any better tomorrow. You will not feel any better next week. You may not even feel any better in a month, but I want you to keep going back. Because I think to this point, we keep running back. It goes from duty to delight. That when I kept going back to football, at first it was a struggle. And then all of a sudden I was the senior captain on the football team. It became a delight. It became a love. And when Paul is writing here, that is his heart in this all. There's not like, I'm not going to give you the top 10 ways to pray that's going to fix your prayer life. I'm not going to give you the top 10 things not to do in prayer. But what I want to look at is Paul praying to the church in Ephesus. He's praying for them. He's writing to them. And I think there's some insights that he's going to mention that will bring us from duty to delight in our prayer life. He wants us to be in all and in worship of God. So why don't we turn to Ephesians 1 and we'll take a look specifically at what he's writing about. Because I think there's some things in there that are fascinating, absolutely fascinating as I've studied this, uh, that will allow us to navigate and keep trotting through. So I want encouragement. I would just keep walking. And as we walk through this series, as we walk through this series, we want to come around you all and we want to provide you resources to navigate this. And so there's series guides, study guides in the back that you can take when you leave. Do that on your own. Do it with someone else. Pray as you navigate that series guide. Pray with someone else. Be intentional about that. If you have a family, bring your family into this month of prayer. Be very prayerful with your family, right? We as a staff uh, throughout the weeks in this series, once or twice a week on, uh, I think it's Facebook Live, we're just going to have a session of prayer on Facebook Live that you can hop into and just pray along with the staff. We're just trying to surround this whole series with how can we run into the vision of star Starting with prayer. I think so many times it's just kind of like, yep, we pray. Or yep, it's over here. That the foundation of our lives in following Jesus would be with prayer and running to him. So that's my encouragement as we run into this series, into this passage. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 is where we're going to be specifically. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. If you want to look at kind of the history of his relationship with them, Acts 19 gives you some information about his missionary journey. There he is writing, this is key, and we're going to get back to this, he's writing while sitting in prison. 
Okay, so he's writing this letter while sitting in prison. That is key for how you'll see this letter flesh out. Let's read it together, okay? Verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We're going to navigate this passage over the next few weeks. A couple things I want to highlight before we hone into one verse today. We're just going to look at one verse today of this prayer is kind of the precursor to this prayer. It's interesting. Paul leads with, for this reason. He has a reason that he's addressing them. And his reason is laid out in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And if you go back and read that, you'll notice that Paul is writing about those in Christ, those who have said yes to Jesus, there are a numerous amount of spiritual blessings involved. You have this grace that is freely given, that you are chosen, that the Holy Spirit resides in you. He says, for that reason, therefore, I am writing this to you. But he doesn't only say that. He also mentions their faith. He says, your faith in God and your love for others. Like, I'm so thankful for that, and I'm going to run to God in prayer because of that. I'm going to be continually praying for you. And then lastly, I was interested, he mentioned our God. Like, he addresses God, our Father, our glorious Father, God of Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're running to. That's who we're addressing And that's who gives us what we need. He precurses that, and I think it runs into the overarching what I want us to get not only today, but as we walk through this series. Because there's something very different about how Paul prays. It's very different about how Paul prays. And this is, I'd write this down. Uh, There will be a slide about it. Paul prayed different because he focused on spiritual matters rather than worldly chatter. That Paul prayed different because he was more focused on the spiritual matters, the spiritual state of people, than worldly chatter. Okay, worldly chatter, if if I'm going to define it, it's basically the uh, change my circumstance prayers, okay, which are not always bad. I'm not knocking those all the time, but it's kind of the change my circumstance prayers. I uh, would lead middle school groups when I was in student ministry stuff. I'd lead middle school groups, and I love middle school students because they're just real and honest and raw, and it's awesome to hang out with them. And I would do small group time, and we'd get to the end, you know, and the, the classic, like, what's our prayer request today? And we'd sit in the circle, and I remember, like, Joey would be over here, and he's like, I got this new video game. And it's, it's just beat me to a pulp. I need prayer to pass the next level, right? And you're like, okay, we'll start there. And we come around to uh, Sam, and it's like, man, my teacher gave me so much homework this weekend, and I can't even, I don't even know what to do with it. And we're like, okay, we'll start there. And my parents, they gave me chores. 
I can't believe they give me chores. I need prayer for strength and courage to get through this time of chores. And I'm like, well, that's just where we're going to start. And so we pray in that circle, right? And we laugh and it's funny and, and it's true and they're just being real about life. That's what they're navigating right now. But what's funny is, and maybe ironic, is that it kind of rolls into adulthood also, right? That our prayers oftentimes will center around my circumstances, well, you don't know my boss, man, he's treating me terrible, and man, I need a job, and I need to figure this out, and so we need prayers that this figures itself out. Man, can you believe all my family members, and they, got, they want Thanksgiving at my house, and oh my goodness, it's crazy, I need prayers to change that, and then the Browns are terrible right now, and so we need prayers just to fix that, which prayers, I don't, they're past praying, man, the Browns are just past that, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. We joke about that, right? Not saying all the change my circumstances are bad. We need to pray for those things. We do. We need to lift those up to God. But what Paul is saying is, are we lifting up the spiritual state of others and the spiritual matters of this world to God? Like That's what he's focused on. It's interesting. In other letters that he writes, he mentions this. Colossians 1, 9 through 14, it says this. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. This is Paul talking. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says this, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's focused, he's like, I pray that your love abounds more and more, that you gain wisdom and insight and knowledge of who Jesus is. Warren Wiersbe, quote, writes it like this. And he does not ask God, he's referring to Paul, to give them what they don't have, but prays that God would reveal to them what they do have. It's interesting. It's, in, it's doubly interesting because Paul is sitting in a prison cell currently writing this letter. His circumstances are junk. Like he's sitting there because of his faith and he's sitting in this dungy, old, rat-infested cell and he's writing for the spiritual state of the church of Ephesus. Right? And I think that's what he wants us to get. He wants us to pray different. He wants us to get past our frivolous circumstances and pray confidently about what we have in Christ and pray for others that don't have that so they can experience that. It's a totally different mindset. And like I said, I'm not against the worldly stuff. I'm not against the circumstances. Like we need to pray and lift those up to God. But where is our first step when we approach God in prayer? Today, Paul is going to, Direct us in one way, and then we're going to flesh out uh, multiple through the next couple weeks. But here's the one way. I write this down. This is going to be where we land on the sermon today. Paul wants us to pray to know God better. Pray to know God better. Verse 17, he says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Uh, side note, before we get started into what this passage is, or this verse is talking about, I think it's interesting, Paul says, I keep asking that God may give. Someone else, somewhere else in scripture that kind of notes this way of prayer, uh, it's in Matthew 7, 
Matthew 7, 7 through 8, Jesus says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will knock. uh, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. So the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I don't think this is like uh, present every prayer to God and it will be answered directly and exactly how you want it to be answered, right? I don't think that's how he means it, but I think he's saying run to me. Ask, knock, come my way and you will receive. And that's what Paul is doing. It's like, God, I'm asking that you may give the church this. He's running in response to that. And he's asking, may they know him better. Now, there's different words in this verse, okay? There's different words in this verse. Uh, one is knowledge, right? May know him better. One's wisdom, one's revelation. So we got to understand kind of what is he talking about in this. So this is not on your notes, but it might be worth writing down as we navigate the rest of the sermon. Knowledge, we all know this, is basically knowing something. It's knowing something. It's the facts. It's the information. I know this about this person, about this team, about this car, whatever it may be. I have knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge lived out. It's in action. Knowledge in action, right? And then you have revelation, and that is knowledge made known. Knowledge made known. It's like the light bulb went off. Okay, I get it. I understand it now. I got the information intake. Golden. And what Paul is doing, he's asking He's asking God to give them the spirit of revelation and of wisdom so that they may know God better. That he's asking God, he's saying, give them, give them this wisdom and revelation. What's he mean? What he means is, I want them to know about you, God, and I want them to know you, God. I want them to know about you, God, and I want them to know you, God. And so where does he start? Where we're going to start today is Paul wants God to be made known to the church in Ephesus, but I believe to us as a church today. So how is God revealed to us? How is God revealed to us? What does he mean by that? How can we see that flesh out? How can God be made known to us on earth, everyday life? The first thing I would write down is this. I know God through his creation. I know God through his creation. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Tim Keller says this, nature can affect you like a great art. That knowledge is revealed through creation, that when we see creation, we should see the creator, God. That it's revealed, that his design and his imagination, his creativity is seen in creation. J.D. Greer says this, basic art interpretation theory says, to understand the art, you must know the artist. To know the artist, you must study his art. God is the ultimate creator and the artist of the universe. And when we study his creation, we ultimately are studying the creator and knowing the creator through that. I found this fascinating. A physicist named Charles Misner whoops, once commented on the notion of the grandeur of the heavens. It's what he had to say. It's a quote. The design of the universe is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religions. Although he struck me as basically a very religious man, Einstein must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that he, uh, they were blaspheming. He had seen more majesty than he had ever imagined in the creation of the universe and felt the God they were talking about couldn't have been the real thing. 
That struck me. That struck me because he, he not only most, maybe most intelligent man in the universe who studied science, who studied creation, who studied nature, he was blown away at what God had done. And yet we can sit and belittle who God is. I think what Paul wants us to see is that we want to see the glory and the wonder of who God is and the almighty, powerful creator that we get to see. I was looking up as I was thinking about this point, I was looking up some different facts about our universe and us that kind of drew into this point of we uh, can see the power and the glory and the amazement and creativity, creative ability of God in the midst of our creation right now. First kind of stat just startled me. There might be as many as three sextillion stars in the universe. That's three followed by 23 zeros, which is written on my page and it is mind-boggling. That's more than all of the grains of sand on the earth. The sun makes up 99.86% of the mass of the solar system. It's so big that you could squeeze 1.3 million earths inside of it. If you unraveled all of the DNA in your body, a singular body, it would span 34 billion miles, reaching the Pluto 2.6 billion miles away and back six times. Those are unreal numbers, and that's just three facts about creation and what God created. That should blow our minds to pieces. And I think so often, so often, it's not a bad thing, it's not a bad thing that we can sit and we can try to articulate and figure out creation and figure all these things. And instead, what if we sat in the all of who God is, in the presence and power of who God is and say, wow, we serve a big God. Wow, we serve a God who's bigger, more knowledgeable. He is present in everything and he created me and you and everything else in the universe. And it works pretty well. It's amazing. So that's the first thing. We can see God. I can know God through his creation. Second thing I write down is this. I know God through his word. I know God through his word, through scripture, through the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.21 says this, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through, uh, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God is the ultimate author, right? And he used human writers to write down his words. So I thought, as I was navigating this, what could be a good way to kind of illustrate this point? Now, I need your eyes up here, okay? This is a judgment-free zone. Okay, so I will share and I'll be open with some things, but judgment-free zone, okay, about my life. I'm opening up here, being a little uh, transparent. I uh, and my wife used to have Netflix, okay? We used to watch Netflix, shows and movies, all that good stuff, which is great. And uh, we would sit and we'd watch seasons of shows together, not all in one sitting, but just progressively as weekends went by and such. And uh, our first show we watched together was Gilmore Girls, and I truly did enjoy Gilmore Girls, okay? So if you haven't watched it before, it's Maybe worth watching for you, maybe not. But another show that we watched, okay? Another show that we watched was called Once Upon a Time. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but basically the premise of this show, okay? And I will 
my wife chose a lot of these shows, and I just kind of jumped in because I'm a loving husband in a lot of ways, right? But uh, Once Upon a Time was this show, and it had Disney fairy tale characters like in real life. And it, it was kind of a twist on their story, and the, the director did different things with the stories. Uh, it was a unique show nonetheless. But as you open up the first season in the first episode, you see that they are cursed. You find out they're cursed, and they're living in our lands, like Earth, and they don't know who they are. They don't know that they're princesses and princes and all that stuff. And so they're sitting in this land and they are cursed from their fairy tale land, the land that they came from. But as you go throughout the story to spare all the details of the story, you can watch it on your own if you want, you find out there's an author involved, that all of these stories are contained in this book, right? And there's an author involved that's writing these stories down. And it's fascinating is the author can add to the story, you add to the story, and eventually the authorship, it changes, but it got to one of the main characters, which is a teenage boy, and he's actually connected to a lot of what's going on and wants to figure out how to solve the problem for everybody. And when he becomes the author, you see through the story and how the story plays out, you learn a lot about the author, that he wanted redemption, he wanted reconciliation, he wanted forgiveness, he wanted the happily ever after. He wanted it to work out. I think it's fascinating, maybe not a perfect illustration, but in that story, as the story played out, you learned a lot about the author with how situations played out and how the story went. And I think that's exactly what we learn about God through the pages of the Bible, through the pages of Scripture. As the story plays out, you learn a lot about the author. As the story of God plays out, you learn that God is love, He's grace, He's commitment compassion. He's generous. He is sacrificial. That when you dive into the word, and not all of it makes sense. I understand. Like There's things in there I'm like, what is going on? But the overall story and how it's written out, when you really hone into that, you're like, wow, God loves me. And here's the thing that just got me. The author of the story loves me so much he sent his son to die for me. The author wants a relationship with you and me. That's powerful. So we see first, study the art to know the artist. Second, study the word to know the author. Third is this, and we'll blast on. I know God through his son. I know God through his son. Jesus is ultimately the one we see God perfectly in. As I would say, Jesus is God in a bod. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God. Okay, Jesus is God and is in closest relationship with the Father, and has made him known. Want to know God? You look at Jesus. You want to know God's character? You look at Jesus. You want to know God's mission? You look at Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four, we call them the Gospels that are in the Bible. If you read through there, and you're reading about Jesus, whatever's said about Jesus, and whatever his character is like, and the mission he's running towards, that is God. You can see a perfect example of God there. So we see the study the art to know the artist, study the word to know the author, and we study the son to know the father. Yet, yet, I can know God through facts being revealed to me. I can know God about, uh, know God in these facts way. God can be made known to me, he can be revealed to me, and yet, at the same time, I may not know God. It's fascinating. I think Paul is getting at something here. 
that I can have all these facts, I can read about God, God can be made known to me, and yet I may not know God. And what Paul wants us to get and focus on is, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to move past just knowing about God and actually having a relationship with God and knowing God? The word that Paul uses, okay, when we read uh, in verse 17, so you may know him better, okay, there's two derivatives in Hebrew of this know, okay, of this know. One is uh, pronounced oida, and it is basically just facts and information, okay, that's to know something, facts and information. The other one is gnosko. Gnosko is the Hebrew word for sex, okay, it's interesting, right, you're like, whoa, what is going on? But in Genesis 4.1, in the KJV version, this is what it says. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. That Paul, I think what he is referring to is in knowing God and using this word, gnosko, he's like, I want you to have an intimate relationship with God. I want you to experience this relationship. So we all know sex is an intimate act between a man and a woman that you know that person differently than you know anybody else. And he's like, I want you to know God, that I'm going to be so transparent, I'm going to be so real about using that word so that you know what I mean. So I thought, how could I illustrate this the best way? So I thought I'd bring donuts. What's up, right? Donut action. Anybody else like donuts? I only got one, so I'm sorry about that. Huh? But I thought, what well, could be a silly way to kind of illustrate what he's saying, okay? So uh, I have a donut up here, and I got it from Giant Eagle uh, yesterday. So I was sitting in my house almost all day yesterday, and I'm just looking at them. I'm like, Jess, can I just have one? She's like, it's an illustration. You can't have it yet. But there's this donut up here, okay? It's a glazed donut. And um, we, we all know, you know, you can see kind of the glaze on there. We all know it's from Giant Eagle now, because I told you I bought it from there. Uh, we, we all pretty much know that it's just kind of a regular old donut, right? We probably it's soft, you know, I, I, I know it's soft inside. It's kind of melt in your mouth, right? I'm kind of revealing to you the truth about this donut. And so at this point, you're looking at me, and you're like, I know I know about that donut. I know about the donut. Right? And you've probably maybe experienced a donut before, and so you kind of know what it's going to be like. And um, to leave it just at that, right? to just leave it at that would not do it justice. But here is the kicker. Oh. <laughs> mm. I wish I had like 60 more to pass out. Here's the thing. I revealed to you what the donut is like. You know about the donut. But now I have experienced eating the donut, and I know it completely different than you all do. I do. I can tell you that it is soft, that it is melt in your mouth, that the glaze is perfectly around all the donut, that you get enough sugar and sweetness. I know that, right? What has been revealed to me, I've also experienced. And that's kind of what Paul is saying, what he's saying is this, that we can know a lot about Jesus. We can know a lot about who he is. We can read all this stuff. And yet, if I never take a bite of the donut, I'm not truly experiencing who he is. If I never say yes to Jesus and jump into relationship, I'm missing out on knowing him. So how does that work? Let's flesh out a few things. How do I know God? How do I go and experience this truth? He's talking about the spirit of wisdom. This is kind of where he's connecting it. I want you to know the spirit of wisdom. That's where it's connecting. The first thing is this. 
Do I know Jesus? Do I know Jesus? Because here's the thing. I, I, in my personal story, and hopefully this will flesh, flesh out in months to come, uh, one of the things that I struggled with, one of the things I struggled with is I knew a lot about Jesus. You grew up in a pastor's home, you just, you just know a lot about Jesus. You're expected to know a lot about Jesus. I knew a lot about Jesus. Not till college did it hit what it meant to know Jesus and know the gospel and live in that knowledge through wisdom. So do I know Jesus? John 5, 39 through 40 says this. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is talking to religious leaders. They know more than me and you combined about the Bible. They know more about the Hebrew language, whatever it may be. And they knew a lot. They had a lot of study in the scriptures, but they didn't know Jesus was connected to life. They didn't know about Jesus. They didn't know the scriptures led to Jesus. They know the scriptures throughout it all point to Jesus and lead them to him. So they missed it completely. Knowing Jesus is more than facts, a Bible study, and church attendance. Knowing Jesus is a relationship I run into. I was studying this, and one night, um, I, we put my son down, and then he woke up two hours later. Like, if you're a parent, you ever have that where you're like, darn, we were so close to going to sleep. So I went into his room. I picked him up, and I was just kind of comforting him to get him back to sleep. I remember looking down at him and thinking through this sermon and what Paul wants us to get. And I looked down at him and I said to myself in my mind as I'm thinking through this, like, I want my son to know me. Because it would be such a shame if he turned 18, got out of the house, and someone asked him, what do you know about your father? And he said, well, I know he's a preacher, he's a pastor, whatever it may be, you know. I know he went to Norton High School. I know he's married to my mom. I know he likes football. I know he likes Penn State football. I know he likes donuts, right? And it was just that. He just knew a bunch of facts about me, and we didn't have a relationship. And I looked down at him, and I said, I want him to know me. I want him to know the joys that we have, the excitement. I want him to walk through the hardships. I want him to know who I am. And I want us to do, it, do life together. I think that's what uh, Paul is writing about. He's like, I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. It's so much more profound than just knowing facts about Jesus. It's lived out. So underneath of that, I would write this. I can know by believing. I can know by believing. John 20, 31 says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Here, here's what we would say here. The gospel is at the center of everything we do. And the first step for saying yes to Jesus is believing. That is saying yes to Jesus. That we believe that he lived a life that we could never live. He was sinless and perfect. That he died a death that we should have died. Because of our sins, he took the cross for us, and he rose again so that we could have life. We can have life. And he says, if you believe in me and you believe in what I did for you and you believe in who I am, you will be saved, but you'll also have meaning and purpose on this earth. It's powerful. So for some of us, that's where it starts. I can know him by saying yes to him, by believing and trusting and putting my life into him. The second thing is this, I can know by following I can know by following 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Verse 3 just says this, we know that we can uh, have, or we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Here's something I know. When I follow someone intently, I get to know them better. 
Like, I will know someone if I follow them on a daily basis, right? You get to know who they are and what they're about. You just learn, right? Even if you're at a distance, which is creepy. Don't do that to people. But even if you're watching someone at a distance, you're following, you figure out who they are and what they're about. And Jesus is like, follow me. Follow me. You will know who I am as you follow me, and you'll know all about what I'm about. Like, you will figure it out, and we will have this relationship because you'll become about what I'm about. The second thing I would put, do I know Jesus? Second thing is this, have I experienced Jesus? Am I truly experiencing this relationship? Is this knowledge being lived out? Is the spirit of wisdom allowing me to, to see this knowledge lived out? And how does that look? I would say in three ways. We're going to bust through this. First way is this, in the stillness. In the stillness. Psalm 46 says this, Psalm 46.10. He says, be still and know that I am God. Okay, we are awful at doing this, not just be still and know I'm God, but being still in our culture. Like, I'm awful at doing this. Here's some facts. 2,000, uh, we swipe our phone about 2,000 times a day. There's 2,000 swipes involved in opening our phone or whatever it is on our phone. We have about 2,000 swipes on average a day. We have about 46 notifications per day. And I was talking to my wife one time, I'm like, I'm literally holding five or six conversations at a time because I can text people, I can talk to my wife, my son's on the ground, and I'm texting four or five people. We're not good at being still. It's just not the culture. That's not, there's so many things going on. We've got to be part of everything. And I think what is, uh, he's talking about here is be still in me. Be in my presence. Run to me. Lean into me. The anxieties and worries of the world will drop off as you sit with me and realize who I am. Know me through that stillness. Jesus, he, uh, he definitely explained this and threw an example out there of his own life. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He spent time with the Father. He showed us by example. So here's some questions I would ask. Are you willing to slow down to sit with him? Are you willing to put down whatever it is in front of you to chat with him? Are you willing to calm down to recognize him? There is this point of maybe in our days, what would it look like to sit in the presence and stillness to say, I want to know you, God, better? Maybe that's reading his word. Maybe that's going to him in prayer. Maybe that's just in our minds, just processing who is God and what is he about. In the stillness, we learn and know God. Second thing I would add is this, in the suffering, Am I experiencing him in the suffering? Paul in uh, Philippians, he writes to the church in Philippi, he points out this truth. I'm not going to read it all, but Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 uh, through 11, we see, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's like, I want to know Christ. Whatever were gains in the past, whatever I thought were going to get the accomplishments, whatever I thought was going to get me to the top, that's all loss. It's all junk compared to knowing Jesus. And then the next slide... He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Listen, I was thinking about this last night, and I thought, this is kind of weird, okay? Not every day do we walk out and say, I really want to participate in everybody else's sufferings. He's like, I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to know Jesus by also knowing what he suffered and even participating in it. And it made me think about, like, what in the world, how do I kind of wrap my mind around this? I would say, I was looking at a research that was done in 2014. 
they did this research panel, and, and what happened is they brought in a bunch of people, and they put them into groups, two different groups. And basically, the objective was there was a bucket of water. You had to retrieve things out of the water and put it to the side, and you did it as a group. One group had lukewarm water they stuck their hand in, pulled things out of. The other group had freezing cold water to the point of it being harmful and uh, hurtful to the people that were sticking their hands in, okay? Uh, It wasn't like a long-term hurt, but it was just very painful. What they found out was after they did that was that the, the comparative of the two exercises, right, it didn't really have much on the individual's emotional states, but what it did have was that the group that went through the more painful, maybe the suffering, the, the hurtful of the two, as a group, they bonded significantly more than the other group. I found that to be fascinating. And as I was thinking about this, I'm like, I wonder if that's what Paul is saying. He's like, I want to know Christ and I want to know what he suffered for me and I want to participate in that because there's joy in the trials and temptations, James says. Joy in suffering like Christ did because I am found to be worthy of following him. In the suffering, I can know Christ. Lastly, I would put this down, in the surrender. Am I experiencing Jesus in the surrender? 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, like we saw before, we know that we have come to know him. We keep his commands. The question I would ask is, am I willing to surrender my life to the one who surrendered everything for my life? Am I willing to surrender my life to the one who surrendered everything for my life? We live in a culture of compromise. We do. My, my age group, younger, older, it don't matter. We live in a culture of compromise that says, I, I may trust in God, yet I'm going to do what I want to do. Because it feels good or that's what I feel like I should do. It fleshes out in all different ways. Maybe our sex life. I know what God says about that, but we love each other, so it's Okay. Maybe with our money, right? I know what God says about that, but I need the security and I need the comfort. Church even. I know what God says about that, but we're just so busy. We've got so much going on and there's just so much we can't keep up. James 4, 7 through 8 says this, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Submitting and surrendering leads to drawing near. I think it's interesting as uh, James was writing this, he kind of connected, submit yourselves, come near to me, and I will come near to you, God is saying. That as we submit, we know God more and more and more, and we lean into that relationship more and more and more. Just like if my wife and me, if we just keep submitting to each other, our relationship is going to grow closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. We're going to figure out who each other are as we grow in years. That's the last thing underneath, am I experiencing Jesus? And then I would write this down, and then we'll wrap up from here. Have I shared Jesus? Have I shared Jesus? It's the last thing. The question I would ask here is, do I make the one I know known? Do I make the one I know known? Now, here's the thing, okay? And I have this box here. It's not full with any other donuts, but let's just imagine it was. There's like 11 other donuts in here, okay? The tragedy in this would be if I took that donut out and I had 11 other in here, right? The tragedy would be if I said, no, no, these are for me, and this is kind of my relationship between the donuts, and I will eat the other 11, right? One, it would just be sickening. That just would not be right. And two, you'd all be like, what in the world? What's this guy doing? Who does he think he is? Like, he's not going to share it with us, Right? And I think oftentimes, 
oftentimes, if you take that illustration, what becomes scary is we have donuts to Jesus, this relationship with Jesus, and yet we're not willing to share it with others. I don't know, Jesus is my thing. I got, I got, he's my thing. He's my relationship. I got it figured out. I go to church and we don't pass out the other 11 donuts to people who need to experience the goodness of who Jesus is. One of the saddest verses in all of the Bible comes from Judges 2. Judges 2.10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. The saddest verses in all the Bible because a whole generation had no idea who God was and what he had done for their parents and grandparents, a whole ancestry. Like, may that not be so with us, that I'm willing to extend what I have experienced, that I can know God and I can know Jesus more and more as I extend and I give, as I pass out the donuts per se, as I share Jesus with others, not only will others know him and come to know him, which is the most powerful thing of that experience, but, but you will also go into a deeper relationship with Christ. That's the last thing. Have I shared Jesus? Am I experiencing Jesus? Do I know Jesus? You might be sitting there and you're like, what does this have to do with prayer? We spent a lot of time talking about knowing Jesus, Jesus being made known to us. And here's the question I would ask. How am I praying this for others? How am I praying this for others? That's what I would check into this week. How am I praying this for others? Because it struck me hard when I read this passage. So used to like, well, God, this is going on, and God fix this, and God help in this, and God figure out this. And what if we just honed into this week and said, God, please give them the spirit of wisdom revelation so that they would know you better. That's what I care about this week. Yeah, we can do that for ourselves, right? We can start there. God, I want to know you better. Help me gain in wisdom and revelation to know you better and know what it means to live for you, know what it means to submit to you, and know what it means to surrender, know what it means to suffer with you. But what if we started to do that for our church family? Just like Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, we pray, God, I want them to know you better. I know right now they are in a junky situation. They're in a prison cell per se. And I want them to know you better even in the midst of their circumstance that, that maybe you don't change, maybe you do, that out of it they would know who you are and know what you're about in ways that they never imagined. The relationship with you would grow. What well, it started here and then it trickled out into our community. We talk about our three all the time, right? Three people, we relationship that do not know Jesus. What if it launched into how we pray for them? God, not just change their circumstance, not just like, get their head right around so they figure out who Jesus is. It's like, God, I want them to know you and know you better. So I'm going to come to you first and foremost. And then as opportunities come, I'm going to share with them. I'm going to pray that they would know you better, that they would surrender their life to you. They would see you for the first time and be revealed to them. That's what Paul is getting at, that we would run into prayer first and foremost with the spiritual state of people on our minds. Not that the worldly circumstances are a bad thing to pray for, but what would it look like to pray different this week? 
your, your, your siblings, maybe it's your mom and dad, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your neighbors, maybe it's your church family, the group that you're in, maybe it's the friendships that you have. And you said, my first and foremost is that they know you better, God, even in the midst of what they're walking through. That's where we're going to start. Next week, we're going to talk about hope. The week after that, we're going to talk about power. And the week after that, we're going to talk about love to close it up. But I so deeply am passionate about this as I read it. Because this is the vision that God wants us to launch with as we interact with each other and then interact with others in our community here in Barberton. So why don't we pray? And I'd love to see you in future weeks as we navigate this conversation.